what are the three or four frequently unasked questions that people who desperately need coaching, and I'm minded of that scene in Good Morning Vietnam, where he's being reprimanded by the, uh, the colonel for being insubordinate, and he's describing the captain. <laughs> there we go. Right. Okay. It does feel like that quite often. So what are the questions that they should be asking themselves or of coaches that they're just not? And as a result, they end up not getting a coach or they get they pick the wrong one. I think the the biggest challenge currently are that many high performers think and believe that doing more of the same is going to continue their rate of progress, where in reality, there are new perspectives and new skills that they have to learn. And they have to keep doing the basics. That's what I see a lot of them do. Without, yes, without forgetting the basics. So there are really three things. There's continuing to refine your specialist skill. There is holistic development. So what are the other elements outside? And the third one is without forgetting those foundational rocks. Yeah. Okay. So next question. Tell me this. What are the blind spots high performers have? The your book and look for the highlighted bits. <laughs> <laughs> I think the biggest... The biggest blind spot is that most of them think that they're they are unique and that they're special, just like everyone else. Just like everyone else, yeah. There's a very careful. There's a paradox that I think that they have to. That, that I think to be a high performer, you have to live a paradox, and um, it's. It was best described to me in a, a special forces guy that you are different, but you're no better than anybody else. You're different, but you're not any better. And this is where we need to celebrate the differences, but delight and delight in the fact that you play to your strengths. And when your strengths are needed, you step forward to lead. And when they're not, and it's someone else's turn, you step back and you keep your ego firmly you know, at the door. Yeah, and I, I, I use that word enjoy as well a lot, particularly around weaknesses. And uh, and I use weaknesses in air quotes, like in LA, but I, I use that because they are areas of opportunity and you have to enjoy them. And you have to enjoy the fact that somebody else does it better. Don't You can't get bitter. Don't get bitter, get better. Enjoy it. Somebody did it better, brilliant. I'm going to learn from them. And that's not, I'm Irish, I'm not into tree hogging and being, you know, that's, it's not a, what's, what's the word, uh, fortune cookie quote, I, I believe that. If you've got a, a weakness, it's really an area, to, it's an area of development, it's an area of an opportunity. It can be. Interestingly enough, what the research tends to suggest is that if you focus on your weaknesses, trying to bolster up your weaknesses, you normally lose um, the equivalent amount from your strength in True. terms of its impact. Uh, yes. So 
I should have qualified. Your weakness will never become a strength. Like you're never going to turn a weakness into a strength, but it's an area of development, serve your opportunity, but correct. Never, ever forget your strengths are what are going to help you win. Your areas of opportunity are what are going to prevent you from losing. Now, this is again really interesting the difference in attitude uh, between average and top performers towards winning and losing. Do they play to win or do they play not to lose? Truthfully, throughout one's career, early on in one's career, you are generally driven by a fear of losing and bitterness and often negative motivations. A high performer, a high performer switch, you know, become very driven to to win and to dominate and to and and that gives confidence. But that's not to say that negative drivers and emotions aren't used occasionally. Fear can be a good thing from time to time. I'll often galvanize both fear and uh, gain because I, you know, one of my favorite opening uh, early questions with a, a coaching client is, "So, Fergus, tell me something. Just out of curiosity, how long do you reckon you're dead for?" <laughs> oh, that's brilliant! How long? A couple of years? A couple of thousand years? You get recycled, sent to purgatory, get back? A couple of thousand years, if you believe in that, yeah. Okay, and if you don't? You get one spin around this uh, wonderful world, that's it. Okay, so on, on that spectrum, where do you fit? I'm living every single day. This is a, the best. Uh, answer me this. You're how old? 45. I know I don't look at Marcus. 45. No, 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 you look way, way. <laughs> uh, it must be your moisturizer. Um, <laughs> and you have to share your regime with me. Again, tell me this. I mean, you know, your family... Um, I mean, you've got a, a good, healthy uh, complexion to you, um, and you know, carry some sturdy enough there. And I, I'm curious: the estimated time of uh, destination or time time of death? I, I reckon I've got forty years left. Forty years. So, of that forty years, compared with infinity, i.e., for fucking ever, um, how much of that forty years are you willing to allow? yourself to give away your power be part of someone else's plan or get treated like shit by penny pinching tight asses who have not got your best interests at heart and would sell you and sell their granny for a dollar so how much of your time are you willing to put up with that shit okay well today is the day never again so then they have to count never again never again um because <laughs> i want to drive it home uh, like um I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. It, it it saddens me when, you know, when you see people who don't realize the 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 power that, and the strength that they have, or sometimes you see people who only realize it later in life. I think everybody should. I think everybody should have a rebellious streak in them. You know. What's been the mo one among the most fascinating things for me? has been the expansion of the scale and scope and grandeur of my goals. And having done that, any setbacks just feel like an irritation. It's a mozzie bite. Whereas when my goals were small, I really, really felt them, my setbacks, and they were personal. Now, they, I just don't give a damn because I'm working on 
eight years, I hope to retire. I've worked out roughly how. Might get there sooner, might not. Doesn't really make a whole heap of difference because actually everything in life is fab. Yeah, and I, I guarantee, well, one of the interesting ironies is I would imagine that as you would get closer to that, you'd actually start to become fearful of all of the fun you're actually having chasing the goal and think, I can't do this, or when I, if I retire, I won't get the enjoyment, the buzz out of you know, coaching, mentoring, helping. That might be something that might start to cross your mind. Yeah, assuming I'm still not pushing up daisies, of course. But, um, <laughs> it's just so fascinating when, when, when you consider the choices that we make and the limitations that we create for ourselves by simple erroneous belief or just something we overheard in childhood and you know, not really understanding that we maybe have rights. I also think, Marcus, and I've, I've thought about this quite a bit recently, I think that we underestimate the value of heroes and role models in childhood with young children. I think that we underestimate the impact that dreaming dreams and heroes have. And I think they're very important. Well, on that note, let me introduce my guest today, Fergus Connolly. He's a performance <laughs> coach who works with sports people, special forces. Um, and today we're really going to have a, a look around some really tough and gnarly questions. We were discussing in the green room before why do we think that there's less pragmatism around? And I, I'm sensing a few, too few people even asking any questions. And when, when you see something that's 80 or 90 or 97, 99% ineffective, surely it has to raise the question in your mind, is there a better way? So with that, Fergus, welcome. Marcus, I'm delighted to join you. We've had a lot of fun, actually, just getting to this point. We have, which is why we're going to uh, keep that in the recording, because there was <laughs> nothing that we shouldn't have said in there. And um, I think it was rather good. Do you mind giving us a quick introduction to you? Minute, minute. Actually, no, you've got a really interesting, uh, colourful background. So you've got 90 seconds to explain how you got to where you are today. As you can tell, growing up in Ireland, I grew up along the border during the, during the Troubles, which was an interesting time in, its, in and of itself. Fascinated by, by sport, playing sport. My father was a teacher. And I didn't really know what I wanted to do. At 16, I decided, while well, still at school, okay, I'm going to become a construction studies teacher like my father. Went to university, did my four years, and then realized there's this thing called a, a master's and a PhD. And you can call yourself a doctor. How many years avoiding work was that? <laughs> well, actually, you're right as well. You're right as well because you know university is the best time of your life, and you don't have you know you you're, you have poverty, but it's just it's a different type. I got to do a four year degree. Everyone else did three. I flagged <laughs> off work for an extra year. It was fucking wonderful. <laughs> And it, it was, and I, I did that down and I did all of it in the same university in, in Limerick. But what it did, it taught me so much. But I still had this interest in sports people, high performers. Really, it was high performers because I was interested in, like, why are some people great? Did that finish, taught for a few years. I would save my money up until 
the summer came along and I would email and email was just starting then email famous coaches around the world and go, Hey, listen, could I come and see what you're doing? And every single one, apart from one person, every single coach said, if you can make it here, sure. And I would offer to pay them. Nobody took money. They said, look, if you can make it. So New Zealand, Canada, the States, and I would go and spend a week or two and learn from them. And and that's, that's what I, that's what I did. And then what happened, it was, it was interesting because I would get there and I would bring, I would bring a small gift or something because again, you, you want to share with people. And then my, my form of sharing came, they would ask me about somebody else that I had visited, another famous coach that they were in awe of, but they were so busy working, they didn't have a chance to go and learn. So I would share and, and connect. And anyway, to make a 90-second talk, three minutes long, <laughs> visited, visited Boat and Wanderers one year. They changed their staff, and I get a call a few weeks later saying, look, our Sam Allardyce has just gone to Newcastle. We've lost a lot of staff. You were here, really impressed with you. Seem we've got an opening here. Would you be interested in in a job? I took a career break twenty years ago, and I never went back teaching. And that just started a career in sports. So from soccer to rugby to the NFL, consulted for some special forces units, and then the last four years, it's been largely with executives and all all high performers. Because my first job was in the Premier League. Like I never worked with academies or youth it was just straight in at the deep end and sink or swim really interesting yeah so it's it's been a when people ask me like you know when you say when you get to here i still i don't even know where i'm going i just love working with and learning about i i I have a really interesting question and it's exceptionally insensitive as well as sensitive uh, so tell me to boil my head if you don't want to answer. But you've spent quite a lot of time working with killers who are borderline psychopathic, if you to put them on the Herr Bibiak scale of uh, psychopathy. And I'm really curious because in their research, it's said that on death row, 3% of the prisoners on death row were clinically psychopathic, whereas in the U.S. boardroom, 5% of American boardroom members were clinically psychopathic. I'm really curious how that translates in terms of high performance, whether psychopathy is actually a, a desirable recruitable trait, and how do you make sure it's manageable so that they're functioning psychopaths in the same way that you can have a functioning alcoholic? Brilliant question. Let's just do the whole chat on this alone, because you're right, and I've spent a lot of time in this space for a number of reasons. Many high performers display psychopathic and sociopathic tendencies and traits. Now, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, so I can't diagnose and wouldn't, but they do tend, many of them can, and they, there are some benefits to having those tendencies. The actually most dangerous thing, in my experience, working with groups like that, being part of them and working for some, is they're not 
often the most dangerous. It's the people around them who are not aware of that and who tend to try and follow those people because that's what they believe to be. And they can't because they possess guilt, shame, empathy, and they don't understand why this other person doesn't. And that's a big, that's one of the biggest challenges that you find. Um, well, th- this is really interesting because we're seeing this at the moment um, with the great resignation, the great retirement. We're seeing last year it was 42%. This year it's 72% of employees in tech uh, were last year 42% applied. And this year 72% are expected to apply for um, a new job whatever their positions, not just sales, across the board. And 40% of salespeople will have a side gig, largely because they don't trust their companies and they don't trust their bosses. It's interesting because success is amoral. That's why it's important to be able to distinguish between effective and good. Hitler, as an example, was an effective leader. Was he a good leader? No, not at all. But uh, take Margaret Thatcher. Depending on where you stand, Margaret Thatcher, certainly effective, but was she good? That depends on perspective. Psychopaths, sociopaths can be very effective, but that doesn't mean they're good. And so when people throw the word good around, it bugs me a little bit. You, You need to define the difference between effective and good and be clear about that. That's very helpful for many people when they're working with high performers. So on that note then, have you noticed whether or not they have any level of self-awareness of their narcissism and their psychopathy? The truthful answer is no, but of course, psychopaths are so smart that they can give you the impression that they are. But fundamentally, that's one of their biggest issues. They struggle with having self-awareness and more... And awareness is complex because you've got the internal perspective, but also then understanding how it affects others. So they struggle to understand how their actions impact others and how others might feel, particularly feel about what they do, how they act, and why something's important. Okay. So if you're one of those people who is tempted to follow someone who displays the uh, characteristics of a narcissist or a sociopath, what are the early warning signs that may be betting on the wrong horse? What you will often find in an organization that's led by a psychopath is that they very quickly attract enablers and cheerleaders. So you're, you're there and you've got weak-willed people who are going to flock to this flame. Tell this psychopathic boss that they're, everything they're doing is brilliant, cheerlead. That's what they want to hear. They think they're doing brilliant. And, that's, and if you're narcissistic, you're going to love this. Now you, if you've got a strong moral compass, you're going to struggle with that because you're going to end up seeing, noticing decisions that are immoral, that are affecting you, the company, the future of the company. And that's going to be one of the signs. And it can be confusing because you're going to be in that situation and feel isolated. This is really interesting because 
my 16-year-old daughter is applying for a job at the moment. And she's applied five or six times and she's had these online interviews. At which point they sent her an email saying, you know, we value you as an individual and we want you to feel valued through this recruitment experience as they put me through a robot, she said. And <laughs> you're just thinking the dissonance. I, you know, I, I, I'm coaching a, a chap who's brilliant. He's a wonderful guy, works really hard, managed to drag his sorry ass out of selling accountancy that he hated and get himself into a tech company. And he hit quota by six months and they've um, extended his probation period because he doesn't do demos. So I saw somebody, a flight risk. So somebody posted a meme about the irony of, you know, when you're logging on, that the computer is asking you to verify that you're not a computer by highlighting boxes, you know, that are, <laughs> that are boats and whatever. That's the stage that we've got to. The lizards have taken over. David Icke was probably right, and we're just a cash crop. <laughs> Winning is a people business. For me, the goal isn't success. It's to sustain success. That is the goal. Because anybody can be successful. I can run any company for three years. I can run it into the ground. We can be, we can be highly effective, but not good. And I think buying... three years are really good profits. So some poor sucker following me can pick up the pieces. Yeah. So when I, um, one or two of the, 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 the best mentors I had, they, they used to talk about the three-year rule. And the reason for the three-year rule is if, and I just use a sporting analogy, but it's a very same applies to business. If I come into any organization, the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to create a vision. I'm going to sell that vision hard and present myself as being the best person in the world. If I'm a psychopath, narcissistic psychopath, I'm going to sell it hard. I'm going to get buy-in. I'm going to tell you that I value you and all of these good things. Now, at the end of the first year, I haven't done those things, but you're going to say, you know what? That was a great sales pitch. I still believe him. So I go again, second year. By the end of the third year, not only have you seen, but you know that I'm not sincere, not trustworthy, not honest. And that's where you start to, if you manage even to make it to the third year, that's where organizations struggle. Now, what will happen in, you've got two things. Either you leave because you've made great profits as the CEO or as the boss, or you have a high turnover. And now you've got a new group of people who you just sell your, your shtick to. And you keep ticking it over like well, that. That's the that's the this three year rule. Really interesting because you're you're seeing this happening at the moment. You've you've got a bunch of companies like Celex and Dooley and all uh, laying people off by the thousands. And these are people who've been hitting quota. You've got managers fixated on following a process because that's what the shareholders care about. To hell with the customers. Forget the people who have to deliver the result to your employees. What matters is satisfying some people with money. So what I find really interesting is just how much power is assumed and abdicated to people with money when actually often they're effectively uh, people uh, getting investment and signing their death warrant. 
Yeah, the, the failure rate is 85% or higher. But Marcus, I, I don't think I don't think that there that the issue necessarily is whether or not you know you're just going to focus on profit or if that's your the issue is not being honest about it. Like if you come out and say, look, honestly, we've got a role for you, but just to make it clear, we don't value, we don't care about you, we're only interested in making profit for shareholders. Our shareholders are number one. If you're upfront about it, people can decide whether or not they, they want to work. But it's it's well, it's how you portray it to people. I think that's where the issue that for me anyway, that's where I see the issue. Okay. I often see companies saying that they have a great culture, but actually the culture seems to be much more localized down at a team level. And to me, that's really the sign of an influential manager. I'm not going to say a good manager. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. At the management level, what I am really interested in is how people can lead without stifling, without micromanaging, without being a bottleneck, without having to make the decisions. Because to, to my mind, those seem to be the best leaders, the ones who get out the way. Yeah, we touched on it actually much earlier. I think those are people who enjoy, stealing your word, they enjoy the differences and they enjoy the fact that somebody may do something differently and get a really good result. Or they may make a few mistakes, but you know what? They're trying and it, and they see the good and bad, you know, so to speak. They see what the person's trying to do and they encourage them, they empower them. It, good managers recognize that they can't do everything. And if they choose to try and do everything, you know, they're going to they're going to kill themselves. You know, it's just impossible to do. And you're right, I think at in smaller teams, it's a little bit easier to do. That's a maturity that not a lot of, you know, it takes time for managers to develop, I think, for some to develop. Presumably, high performers fit in the usual distribution curve. So they're probably the square root of the number of people in that particular bit of the organization, um, in my experience. So if you have 10, it's three. If you have 100, it's 10. And if you have 10,000, it's 100. What's interesting is, Quite a few people that that I work with are high performers who have now been promoted to leadership roles, and they have to switch a gear. And this is really interesting because, and there are a number of arcs, but one of the arcs of a high performer is you come into an organization and you have a certain number of qualities, so you're driven, you're motivated, and et cetera. But it's a very internal and a very specific focus. I need to get better. I need to learn these skills. I'm going to work hard and all of these good qualities. Now, when you get to, when you prove that and you get to a certain stage, somebody goes, you would be a great leader. And now you're promoted to a leadership role, which require a different perspective, different set of skills and a different set of interests. Now, good high performers recognize that and will go, okay, I got to learn quickly. Who can I go to? Where can I, who can I lean on? Who are the other mentors? Who are the other role models I can learn from? And what are those skills that I need to learn? And that's where there's a transition from high performer to manager to leader to do it properly. 
You don't go from just a high performer to a leader. You would start to transition a little bit into manager, then to leader. I can't believe you can't have three years as an SDR and then you can become a VP of sales. <laughs> Often you, your best performer is your, if without training, ends up being your worst leader, being, ends up being a complete disaster. And if you've ever calculated the cost of a bad hire, a bad hire in management is worth whatever it is, the number of people that uh, within their team that they're going to drive off and the number of customers that will be driven off as a result of that and all the follow-on business times the number of people that that manager has managed to drive out of the business and then the cost of replacement. So that's what the cost of bad management hire is. Yeah, it's scary. And and also, there are some people, you know, you meet them a number of years into their leadership role, and you, you actually have a lot of work to do to reverse some of the poor habits and perspectives. And, they're, and they sincerely come in, you know, they're genuine, they're good people, they're trying to do the right thing, but nobody has given them any kind of direction or perspective or helped them see this role in a different way. You just can't, you're not going to keep doing the same thing. Well, I'm really curious. And in fact, Todd Capone, if you're listening to this, I'd be very curious in your take. What kind of apprenticeship uh, do we need for managers to learn how to become a manager before we actually promote them? Because it strikes me that you're just putting the livelihoods of seven or eight people in the hands of what could easily be a petulant child with a brittle ego and the love and tenderness of Genghis Khan. Because if they don't get trained, they can do what they think is right, they can do what they've had done to them, or they can feed the nature of the wolf inside. And depending on which one they feed, they could turn out to be a total monster, or worse in my book, they could be a rescuing boss, one that's mollycoddling, permissive, they tolerate non-performance, but above all, they help without boundaries or permission. You just want to punch them. You described it brilliantly. It reminds me of a conversation I had with a brilliant international rugby player one time. He was, in his last year, he was retiring, standing in his kitchen. And he, I was asking him, you know, next year, what are you going to do next season when this year is over? And he said, well, sir, you know, I really want to coach and this guy was world-class, record holder, scorer. And he said, he asked me, what advice would you have? And at that time, kids are running around crazy in the room next to him. His wife's walking through. And uh, I said, you know what you should do? You need to go with her into work tomorrow morning. She was a primary school teacher. <laughs> and, and, I, and, and true, and there, there's, a, there's a number of reasons for it in that, not simply, you know, understanding how to manage chaos and herding cats and all of that, but but also a very important aspect of it is being humbled and the re- the realization that you are now starting at the bottom of not the complete bottom of another mountain, but the recognition that this next phase you have to accept that you're going to be bad, poor, and make a lot of mistakes, just like you did 15 years ago as a when you started your career at this stage now, you have to accept that and you have to enjoy it. And if they go into it with that mindset, 
Now they're going to grow. And that t- that's, that is a mind shift change. Many high performers have been very successful, particularly over the last period. Now you're telling them, what? I need to fail? I don't fail. I'd, no, this is true. Trust me. You, you're going to go into this and enjoy this, struggle at this, and humble yourself. And they forget what it was like when they started their career. Now, if you can remind them about the pain, the discomfort that they went through, they'll, they'll relate that to the success they've had and go, oh, okay, I understand. I need to start at the bottom again here. But now I'm, I'm not losing everything. I'm going to bring what I know, but I'm also going to learn this beautiful new set of skills, and then I can accelerate up. Really interesting. I'm wondering, because when I think of top performers, you tend to think of the top goal scorer or you think of the the star, the one, the gold medal winner. Mm-hmm. But in my book, more often than not, the top performer is the one who sets other people up to score. And they're way, way more important in terms of the cohesion of the team and they're trusted because there's never any selfish self-orientation. There is self-interest there eventually, but they derive their satisfaction from setting others up to succeed. But they do that because they know that there's a long-term goal and the, that this is not that, you know, this isn't just a battle, it's a war. And they so know Sorry to interrupt, but this is really, I want to get it before we lose it. So do top performers have a different perception and a way of consuming time? Keep going. Well, do they relate time differently? um, If I compare uh, Anglo-Saxon business versus Chinese business, in Anglo-Saxon business, we worry about this quarter and maybe next. In Chinese business, they have 100-year plans At the end of the Korean War, the Chinese rented a five-bedroom house for three years. The Americans, three uh, three floors of the Hilton for three months. Who was going to win that negotiation? Mm -hmm. It was a foregone conclusion just by, you know, if you were the real estate agent, you should have gone down to the bookies and put Paddy Power, a thousand quid, uh, on who was going to win. Okay, so we, we see people routinely getting sucked into making their lives more complicated than they need, making themselves the issue, being brittle when they get feedback, worrying about failing instead of embracing it. So is there typically something in top performers that triggers this drive to be willing to make the sacrifices today? Or uh, it's not a sacrifice, it's, it's take the risk of uh, putting in the hard miles, putting in the hours over many years, playing the long game. Yeah, the way that I describe it is they drive they drive a, a two lane freeway or motorway or whatever term you want to use. <laughs> they and they shift between fast and slow lanes. And what I mean by that is that there are periods where they will work hard and overtake, and then then they'll slip back into the slow lane with the long vision in mind. And they can shift between both because whereas a a poor short-term view will just try and stay in the fast lane all the time. And they, they don't recognize that there are periods where you have to, and it's beneficial to not, you're, you're never stopped. You keep moving, 
but that you can switch between both. Yeah, you, um, need, and, and, you need to consolidate, you need to try and regroup, and you need to try and assimilate all this stuff. Because if you're, if you're learning huge amounts, what's the point of learning it if you're not applying it? True. The other thing, too, is that in my experience, this is, and I think this has been proven by research, but most or many high performers have had significant setbacks early in their career. And it's not that they have had just the setback, it's how they have processed that setback. Because we all have setbacks, but a high performer has a setback, learns from it, it recognizes that there is a potential positive that will come out of it, and learns how to overcome. When that happens later in their career, there is a familiarity, whether conscious or unconscious, I have been in a similar situation. I know how to get out of this and I'm going to move forward. Now, it may not be in exactly the same path, maybe slightly off to the left, slightly to the right, but I'm going to keep moving. And that's where the lanes come in. And so this is why when you are hiring, pay attention to this because what Fergus has just said is golden. When you're hiring, particularly managers and leaders, but also, well, actually salespeople, anyone who's going to face challenges, what you want is to identify, have they faced a similar challenge in their previous life? Not do they have 17 years selling ERP into banking. That's irrelevant. No one cares. I can learn that. I can learn all the language I need within six meetings, and I can be fully fluent within 30. So inside of six months, every, I can learn all of that. What I can't learn is empathy very easily. I can't learn the mechanics and the moving parts of your business and the interplay and the factions. That I have to discover by working with other people. So what I'm very interested in is when you look at these top performers, how many of them are standalone prima donnas, as in they are literally the first lady, the first violin, or... How many of them are typically team players? Or do they pick their moments? I'm going to dodge the question by saying they're in the, in the middle. But what I mean by that is that they recognize that they're, they need to continue to improve, but they are not alone. Like they have, everybody has a, a support network and they need both teammates within the organization, but also externally, you know, because high performers will go home and cry on somebody's knee. And generally, they have a good support. They have somebody, whether it's father, mother, spouse, partner, whatever, and, and they have that. And that's part of also, and depending on your, your age, that's part of a maturity. But the just to, just to go back to, it's in my opinion, and you have to be careful how these things are phrased because then they get spun out. Failure is important, but it's not the failure, it's the... It's the aftermath. So when you ask somebody, yeah, when you ask somebody, you know, oh, tell me about a mistake you made. Like that happens a lot in interviews. But what are you listening for? Do you want to see that they're just going to admit that they failed? What you really want to hear is, okay, how do they view that mistake now? What did they learn from it? What was their attitude to it at the time and now? Like, do they dismiss it? Do they blame someone else? But what you really want to hear is you want to hear how they described what they learned, how they overcame it. And truth, and lots of people, you know, if you're truthful about it, you've had a lot of mistakes. 
what you want to hear is somebody who has a healthy view of it, healthy for them. Now, on the other hand, you don't want somebody who just who overwhelms you with mistakes because now you've got somebody who perhaps has an issue around self-worth and self-esteem. But then, and you know what I mean? So you want to find somebody who recognizes that they're human, that they've failed, that they learned how to overcome it. And you really want, what you really want to hear is that they have not replicated the same mistake. Interesting. One of my favorite questions around that is, so Fergus, tell me, what's your best mistake in the last 12 to 18 months? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's really interesting when people respond. It tells you a lot about how particularly blame like you mean who do they blame and how much responsibility they take on and some people will play a barter card and say it was all my fault largely might have been but you don't want somebody who's going to in 12 months time you know end up taking all of the blame and because that's not sincere either Generally, we make poor decisions because we're either, if you meanwhile, you, you made a poor decision because you were misinformed or you made an assumption and you realize now, okay, I had a bias going to this. I should have been more aware. I should have done more homework. I should have known this. And so you've touched on yet another rabbit hole, which we could go down for about three hours, which is the level of self-awareness of one's inner dialogue, the permissions yeah. and boundaries that you have that you're aware of and those that you're not at this level you're starting to uh, potentially fall into the trap of inherited beliefs biases hanging on to um you know a really bad decision because the the alternative is you've just spent three years there cleaning out slime pits uh, for uh, a fake guru it became much more apparent to me coaching high performers, particularly over COVID, because, you know, I I record all of the calls, I listen back to them. And it becomes much more apparent then when you listen to the language that people use and how they use it. And so I will very frequently get people to rephrase things, rephrase questions, just as we're going through it. Because the, the first most important communication skill is listening. The second is is questioning, but the third is how you talk about yourself. So, and that's before you even speak. So we've gone through three stages before I even talk to you about how you speak to other people. How do you talk about yourself and the language you use? And this becomes critical when people are transitioning from high performer to high-performing manager, high-performing leader, because they're going to be making a lot of mistakes. And if they start to beat themselves up, because very often they're coming from this, from a level of brilliant execution, brilliant performance. Now they're in a new environment. Are they going to hold themselves to the same high standards, the same criteria? And if they do, that can be risky for them. Does that make sense? It does. And this is where clearly At that point, if you struggle to ask for help, if your ego is brittle instead of flexible, this is where you're likely to go deeply into a drama triangle cycle 
you'll end up in psychological gameplay where you'll either be persecuting or playing the victim, and then you'll be uh, complaining about how hard you're working and you're doing your best and no one seems to appreciate you, and yada, yada, yada. And then it's just a shitstorm. And, and, and Marcus, that's why I, um, and you'd appreciate this, when you're, when you're mentoring someone or you're coaching someone, you, you have to be tough and you have to be brutally honest. So the image that I always keep in mind is that I smack people around with marshmallows. Like, I'm going to hit you hard, but it's with something, it's, it's soft. Because if I, don't, if I don't smack you with it, you're not going to see it. If I'm, but it, and so it has to be a safe, soft, it has to be a soft, tough place. Otherwise, you're not going to grow. And that's where you have that person at that moment who's in their, you know, moving and you want them to keep moving forward. So you want to keep that motivation, that drive, but keep them on the, on the path. And it's at that point that two things are crucial. One is the degree of intimacy that you have with the person that you're, is reporting to you or you're reporting to. And the second is intent. Your intent is so important when you show up. There was a really interesting study of the Challenger sale when they first launched, and they found that 50% of uh, salespeople who were top performers had a Challenger selling style. Um, Later, when they had a bit more money to do the research, they researched top, middle, and bottom performers. And what they found was exactly the same. 50% of top performers had a Challenger style to their selling. And what they also found was 50% of bottom performers had a challenger style to their selling. So if you're a twat, it doesn't make any difference what technique you use. You're still a twat. And the other person is going to think you're a twat. So they're going to reflect back, you're a twat. I'm not going to buy from you. I don't trust you. And it's the same thing in management, in leadership. How often do we hear people say that we really love to invest in our people? And then they fire 6,000 people by text. And then they turn up weeping on LinkedIn. And <laughs> my life, but I have left with 40 million. So you lot can fuck off. It's just yeah. unbelievable. The other thing too is when you think of the amount of money and time that you have invested in these, in these people, and they have domain-specific knowledge that you can grow something. And to me... You want to build something that is sustainable and that dominates over a period of time. Like that's that's the goal. You want to build a group of people that dominate and they rise to the point where they're challenging you. Like if you're a team leader, and that is beautiful. That that to me is, and I've been part of teams like that. That is, it's special. And you build bonds that you never forget. Like that is, that's truly special. Years ago, when my youngest did gymnastics, they had this fantastic sign that said, you don't rise to the level of your ambition, you fall to the level of your training and practice. And never truer words said. So again, one of the things I love about top performers, and I I don't know whether it's my old age, my diabetes, or I'm just becoming a soft, proper old drip. But when I see top performance, I do genuinely feel a rush of emotion. So there's this magnificent series on Netflix called uh, Chef's Table. And 
these are some of the world's best. And I, I eat what I kill. Um, and uh, clearly I kill quite a lot, but uh, I do like my food. And when I see uh, prodigies performing magnificently or the women's uh, European uh, championships, just, it was magnificent. As you could see, I, I went to see England play at Wembley against Germany where they got their asses wiped 5-0. Uh, and it was the most boring thing I've ever seen. Five, seven years later, you could not even begin to see uh, compare. They, they were like just chalk and cheese. But the delight that they all took in everyone else's success on the team. And what I was particularly impressed with were the defenders. Mm-hmm. Some of them were just so amazing. And I, I, ha- I have to admit a little bias here because my daughter plays uh, for the England Deaf Ladies team. She's in the, uh, the squad and she's played one international mm-hmm. friendly. So uh, as far as I'm concerned, she's played for England. But in fact, she's got a question for you. Uh, so I'm going to deviate. <laughs> the question is, she's doing sports science at Bath. What's the best placement that she can go after if she wants to pursue a career in sports science and she loves anatomy? Oh, wow. Let me think about that and get back to you with a better answer. The just in general, what I did years ago when you had newspapers, like physical newspapers, I would buy the three Sunday papers at home. I would disappear with the sports section, read the big interviews and features and look for the name of the coaches of the best. I would find who's the person actually doing this in practice. And that's where I would start. I didn't listen to people. I went and found like who's who's actually doing this in the field and how do I, like, and I don't know if it was naivety, but you find somebody who knows somebody who, can you get me a, a number for this person? And that's... Fergus, I cannot even begin to tell you how fantastic that advice is. I've been teaching my clients for years. When you first start out, go out and do your research on LinkedIn and identify the managers whose people love them. Okay. Yes. And yeah. then contact those managers with this little introduction. Fergus, cheeky ask, your history is my future. Would you be willing to be my mentor for 20 minutes a month? The conditions are, I will always turn up prepared. I will always have tried three things to solve the one question that I bring you, but I couldn't fix. And we can work together on finding solutions to why I failed. And then I will take your advice and implement it and report back. Anytime I fail to do this, you can fire me. Now, eight out of 10 people say yes. Now, if you get to those, okay, imagine what it's like when you're preparing for your interview to move into a management role. You've now got 12 CEOs who would be the people managing you or VPs. And you can get all of those people quite happily to interview you on particular pieces that they're strong in. Yeah. Yeah, and you've, you've also, if you're the mentor, you have advocates in other companies, you know what I mean, who, and young people will reach out to me from time to time for advice or whatever and, and mentor. And I will always say yes. I would always help, you know, unless, back to your point, unless somebody's an asshole, I would always, always help. Because I've been there. I've been there and you want to. And I remember, I think it's five years ago, this guy sent me an article 
And he said, look, I, you know, I read something you wrote, blah, blah, blah. I've written this. Would, if you had a few minutes, would you read it and edit it? Or just give me your thoughts. Did I understand what you were saying properly was what he was saying. Three years later, we ended up writing four books together. Wow. And, 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 and he, but it was also because it was, a, it was a give and take. There were some things I hadn't explained well. And his value to me outweighed the value he, that I gave to him because of how the questions he asked me and how I was communicating things. So those people who you know, get emails asking for assistance or help and dismiss them, you're missing out. How much younger is he than you? 10 years, 10 years younger than me. If you are over 40 and you don't have someone with lots of white matter in their brain, so around 21 to 26, as your coach, you're definitely missing out. My life has improved exponentially and my business acumen and understanding has improved exponentially because I'm surrounded by these young, fat brains and it's wonderful. Don't write them off. It doesn't matter what sphere you're in, your greatest ability is, is adaptability. And if you have a number who are coming from different domains you're learning from them and that's their area of either usually study training expertise which is again i've got one or two that i'd say hey listen could you find this research paper for me and it'll be on something obscure it's funny because like i remember asking one about looking for a specific paper on on psychopaths actually and he's come and his he papers in my email you know before i even checked to see i've just said hit send it's back in a few seconds but line underneath it why are you why is this of interest so we get into a conversation about why and they go off and are excited to 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 go okay this might be a benefit to me later for, for me that's one of the best payoffs from coaching it's the intersectional moments that we get by solving problems i've worked in 500 different segments of the market now and honestly it's always the same old shit, different day, because all of the problems are about people. Everything, including most of the bad technology purchases, are really about people. Why on God's earth did you buy that piece of shit when actually what you should have done is listen to some of your frontline people and maybe uh, make your customers' lives easier? Just on that point, Marcus, what today, more than, more than ever, you have the a younger demographic coming through and the path is very clearly grooved you know i go to school i go to university then i i look and go okay should i move out into the workforce was well, a bit risky now and if i stay on and do a master's do a phd which there are more and more of that's what we can go and do but the specialization happens at a far younger age and so the people skills you, you're only you're in this echo chamber of people who think like you, who've been taught exactly the same way. They've all read the same books in different universities. But the exposure to people, those people skills that you mentioned, those are, are missing. Uh, I think people are not, be, are not being exposed to. So this is why those challenges around people are more prevalent today than perhaps years ago. Really interesting. Fergus, we've come to the top of the hour, but I want to talk Sorry, about... Yeah. No, no. What are you apologizing for? It's been bloody brilliant. I've loved every minute of this. I could have carried on for hours. Um, I'm just conscious I don't want to take the piss with your time. 
So uh, you've written the book, 59 Lessons, and it's all about working with the world's elite coaches, athletes, and special forces. So do you mind just giving us a sort of quick one-minute overview as to what caused you to write it, first of all? Marcus, not looking for a book plug at all. I, I just wanted to say, just to give, what I did was I just sat down and thought, okay, there are two things. One, I've learned a lot of lessons from a lot of great people. And in fact, what I know comes from somebody else. You know, I've learned from other people. It was also, so it was a way to say thank you. But also to the last point we spoke about, most of the biggest challenges you're going to face are around people, you know, like, you know, don't buy a dog and bark yourself. Like it's a, it's a simple phrase, but, you know, why, you know, use that to explain why you shouldn't micromanage. You know, these are all just small lessons. Like there's no such thing as, you know, tell a story about special forces guy and talking about how the similarities and the dissimilarities between sport and special operations and saying, you know, we have home games. And he said, you know, we don't, we never play home games. We only play away games. And it's a brilliant mindset, you know, mm. everything after over-prepare and, you know. Well, the, the, the home game is practice. Every game is real life. It's championship, it's do or die, isn't it? So what's really interesting uh, about all of this as well is that we forget that friction, adversity, conflict that are actually good things we shouldn't fear them what we should fear is a uh, a uh, an erroneous reflex response uh, reaction that is beyond our control and uh, takes us into an emotional spiral downwards i say to my wife where are my keys sweetheart and she says wherever you left them and i say well you know the place was a bit tidier and she then says my mother was right you are then World War Three breaks out and I'm sleeping on the couch. Well, in fairness, I was in the wrong. I understand that I'm always in the wrong when I do stupid things like this, but it's very easy to get sucked into that emotional game that neither of us were really gunning for, but we managed to just because we reacted poorly to uh, instead of choosing a response. That point about friction and tension is so critical. You need a certain amount of tension within a group for creativity and for innovation. Like you need ideas bouncing off one another. And that's why, you know, this other topical point about uh, diversity and, and inclusion, that's why that's so important. You I need, you need, like, I mean, you know, I even go through it in the book, not to mention the book again, but my experience has been learning from other people around the world. If I just stayed in my own echo chamber and did what everybody else was doing, you're not going to learn. And even if the ideas are different and make you uncomfortable, listen to them because most people have something good to say and you've just dismissed them. You need, you need a diverse, and what diversity means is, it means that this is somebody who has had different experiences. And their experiences bounced off yours are going to create a wonderful spark. So when people talk about, you know, diversity, inclusion, equality, what I see, creativity, innovation, and adaptability. That's your benefit. Now, if that's what you have in your group, you are able to produce a service, a product that is going to serve so many more people. So if you don't want to do that, you're going out with the dinosaurs. You're not producing an, a resilient group of people or resilient product. 
I've got to say, I do want to plug the book because I think it's important that people pay heed because the topics that you cover, winning habits, technology and communication, teamwork and culture, management, facilitation and leadership, innovation, resilience and knowledge, and humility and people. They're topics that we we cover in the podcast constantly. And this is learning from the best in the world. Uh, And I'm going to echo Fergus's point. Many of you conflate my uh, uh, waffling uh, on the podcast with knowing a bit of stuff. The reality is, just like Fergus, I've learned everything from my guests. I couldn't possibly do the, the interviews that I'm doing now or work on the projects I'm doing now if three years ago we didn't kick the podcast off. And from there, I have learned more than I could possibly have ever dreamt of. And what diversity means is you have many eyes focused on the problem, which means you understand the problem from many different perspectives, not just from a limited perspective. How often have we made a judgment call on the basis of a limited amount of information and then we've discovered that we've actually made a horrible error? And then we have to live with that regret, that shame. Okay. Yeah. You don't need yeah. to. Two final points. I, I love the, the Malcolm X quote, uh, only the mistakes have been mine. You know, we've. Only the mistakes? Only the mistakes have been mine. In other words, all of the good things, right. you know, we've learned from somebody else. Speaking of diversity and, and other people, I need to thank our mutual friend, Donald O'Reardon, for introducing wow. us as well. No, this wouldn't have happened. There's been a lot of, been so much fun, Marcus. Thank you so much for for having me. It's my pleasure. How can folks get hold of you? FergusConley.com or look for me on LinkedIn. Okay, one final question then. What one bit of advice would you go back in time with a golden ticket and whisper in the ear of the idiot circus and know that he would have ignored? Make more mistakes. Make more mistakes. But in, in hindsight, I've made a lot of mistakes, some, some shocking mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know what? I would not change a thing because you get an opportunity. And anybody who's struggling with anything, you have an opportunity to learn from it. That's what you have. And jump into that. At your darkest moment, you have a, this is an opportunity. How you choose to use it is the, is the question. I just want to make one little connection here because it sparked a thought. I'm going to challenge you that um, we don't uh, we we don't regret a thing or we wouldn't change a thing. I think regret is really healthy, and I got this off mm-hmm. Dan Pink in I think it's just, uh, Dan Pink's new book uh, where regret informs you of where your values are. And what's really interesting is when you regret having failed in role, often that's the spark that drives you because your standards are significantly higher. You want to perfect it. And it's the incremental gain that seems to be the thrill. The victory at the end, yes, you have that wonderful elation, but that goes. I agree with that. It's probably a semantic thing in that one thing that I I encourage people not to get caught up in the regret or to keep carrying the baggage. In other words, dive into it, learn from it, in that sense, yes, regret it, but... Re- regret it and make it right. It's yeah. really simple. Yeah. If you yeah. fuck up, admit it, fess up, and then do the right thing, if it's possible. Yeah. I, my life is so yeah. much... Yeah, be, because what you, you'll see people will do one of, one of two other things. One, they'll ignore it and deny it, which you're never going to learn from, 
Or secondly, they just spiral into this thing of, oh, oh my, you know, it's it's terrible, woe is me. But, and they never crawl out of it. You want to find the balance. That's the path. And that's how you're going to keep moving forward. On that note, Fergus Connolly, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you haven't got value from this episode, then you're dead inside. Tag people who need to listen to it. If you're looking for a high-performance coach, contact Fergus before you contact me. I'll do the salesy bit, but he'll get your head sorted out. The other one that you want to speak to is Johan Taft. By God, the man can do some amazing things. I'll put the two of you together because uh, I think, in fact, I'll get you both on because that would be really good fun. Okay, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. And I am taking on three new clients for coaching uh, over the next quarter. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be lots of cuddles. No one comes to me for hugs. They come to me because they want their results to improve. If you're one of those and you're willing to uh, put up with a grumpy, bolshy, sweary type of person, then contact me by direct message. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.